Let's pray together, please. Father in heaven, we are so thankful, so blessed that you've given us the light of your truth and your holy word, the Bible. So help us now in this time to receive what it says with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Several scripture readings for this morning. Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 for our first one. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 will be our first scripture reading. First Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. This is God's word. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Our next scripture reading is 1 Timothy 2.9. 1 Timothy 2.9. Back to the left there just a little bit. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. This is God's word. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments. And then another scripture reading, Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Back there to the left just a little bit, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. This is God's word. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then finally, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. To the right there, just a little bit. Titus. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Titus 2, 3 through 5. This is God's word. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. May God bless the reading of his holy word. In her excellent book, I highly recommend, called The Feminist Mistake uh, by Mary Cassian. That's a, that's a play on the title of a popular feminist book by Betty Friedan called The Feminist Mystique. Uh, Mary Cassian's book is The Feminist Mistake. She wrote this. Up until the middle of the last century, Western culture as a whole generally embraced a Judeo-Christian perspective on gender, sexuality, and the purpose and structure of the family. Heterosexual marriage, marital fidelity, and the bearing and nurturing of children in an intact family unit were highly valued concepts and the norm of societal practice. Most agreed that the primary responsibility of the male was to lead, protect, and provide for his family, while the primary responsibility of the female was to nurture and care for her children and manage her home. 
Differences between male and female were accepted and seldom questioned. Furthermore, for both man and woman, the sense of duty and responsibility to family was deemed more important than the pursuit of personal fulfillment. Though they may not have been able to identify the source of their values, individuals had a sense of what it meant to be a man and a woman and the appropriate outworking of gender roles and relationships. And just breaking from the quotation, those days are behind us now. She continues, the speed and magnitude of force with which this understanding was deconstructed is astonishing. Consider the following facts. Since 1960, the divorce rate has increased more than 100%. The marriage rate has decreased. Since 1960, the marriage rate for 15 to 44-year-olds has dropped by 41%. In 1960, cohabitation was called living in sin by everyone. The behavior was considered shameful and culturally deviant. So few couples lived together before marriage that statistics were not even recorded in 1960. Now, 41% of American women ages 15 to 44 have cohabitated. That's almost half. The U.S. Census Bureau reports that cohabitation increased by a factor of 10 between 1960 and 2000. That's 1,000% in 40 years. Prior to 1960, North Americans valued virginity prior to marriage. By the year 2000, 79% of single women aged 20 to 24 were sexually active. 79%. From 1960 to 2000, the percentage of -of out-of-wedlock births increased from 5.3 to 33%, an increase of 523%. One American child is born outside of marriage every 25 seconds. Only 45% of all teenage children, ages 13 to 18, live with their married biological father and mother. That means more than half of kids 13 to 18, more than half do not live with their mom and dad. More than half today. I can cite many more statistics about dramatic increases in abortion, homosexuality, the abuse of women and children, pornography, violence, sexual perversion, sexually transmitted diseases. Never before has mankind faced such a rapid and widespread disintegration of morality and concurrent increase in gender confusion and conflict. The philosophical shift in the middle of the 20th century triggered an unprecedented societal tsunami. Feminism was not the sole catalyst, but it was undeniably an important part of the philosophical earthquake, end quote. I highly recommend her book, The Feminist Mistake. From the fall in the Garden of Eden, confusion of genders, confusion of gender roles has been a problem. But in America today, you are seen as a fossil. You are a fossil. If you even read out loud the passages I just read, let alone actually believe and try to practice what they say. The Christian church in America has, on the whole, not been faithful in its duty to teach the doctrines of Scripture to its congregations and has not been faithful to evangelize its society. Another religion has therefore rushed in to fill the void. You see, no matter where a person stands on any of these issues, we are always inherently religious. We can't help it. A person's worldview regarding human rights, human origins, ethics, destiny after death, if we have one, and how we know anything, those are going to determine what you believe to be true and what you practice as the gender that God assigned you. 
Cultural religion will not just influence, but determine the way you see yourself and your place in this world as a man or a woman. R.J. Rushduni said that culture is simply religion externalized. What our culture calls beautiful today, what American culture calls beautiful today, is in many ways repulsive to the godly, and to what our culture despises is in many ways delightful to the godly. Since the fall of man, there has been a very sinful obsession in our culture with outward appearance. And while we're obligated to take care of ourselves and to groom ourselves, it's easy to allow fashion, riches, and sexuality to become idols. They are idols in this country. It's a really strange thing if you think carefully about it. Why are we so interested in being attractive to other human beings? There are a few things more fleeting than the praises and approval of mankind. The very same people who pat you on the back are just as likely to stab you in the back. Public opinion ought not to be nearly as important to us as it often is. People are very fickle in terms of what they like one day and what they dislike the next. And so we turn to the word of God now to find in it a portrait of what God considers beauty to be. I think if there's one thing that the church needs to understand, especially women that have been born in these times and who are growing up in these times, they need to understand what God considers to be beautiful. And now we're going to look at what the Bible calls incorruptible beauty, which is very precious in the sight of God, says the Holy Spirit through his word. And for all godly women, nothing could be more important than that. I want to encourage women here to have being beautiful to God your main priority when it comes to what you think beauty is. Be beautiful to God first. Commit these passages of scripture to memory. There's nothing more beautiful than true godliness. There's nothing more lovely than women who exhibit the attributes spelled out in the text of scripture, which are this morning's sermon passages. So I want to walk through all of them here together. If you want to turn back to 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4, it really is incredible. The short passages that I've read and you're hearing this morning, every phrase, every term of those passages was given by the Holy Spirit of God so that women would not be confused and lost. So they, be, they would understand what is beautiful, what's pleasing to God, and what they should aspire for. 1 Peter 3, verse 3, here speaking of, of godly women. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel, it says. Now everyone, men and women, want to look decent and want to look good. There's nothing wrong with that. The Word of God specifically tells women here, however, not to allow their beauty to be outward only. Not to be merely outward. And the application is clear. This can be a real temptation to women. To be so concerned about your outward appearance that the cultivation of true inward beauty is neglected. Now notice what it says first there in the list of things. Arranging the hair. Now some translations say braiding the hair or plaiting the hair. This does not mean that you're not allowed to braid your hair. Okay? At the time in which 1 Peter was written, there were certain hairstyles that were associated with lewd and immoral women. And this was one of them. 
The second phrase there, wearing gold. Here again, while the godly women of the Old Testament scriptures often did wear gold, at this time such was the chief attire of harlots and wicked people. There were ways that people would arrange their hair and weave gold into their hair and wear all kinds of different things that were made of gold, and those were the attire of harlots. And look at the last phrase there, putting on fine apparel. It's not a prohibition against wearing nice clothes, but extravagance and excessive costliness is what's being spoken against there. Now think about my part. If I drove to church in a Ferrari that was half a million dollars and I stood here in a $4,500 custom-made suit, which I assure you I am not, (laughs) and and wearing $18,000 worth of custom-made jewelry, wouldn't you think I was a little off for doing that? Wouldn't you raise your eyebrow at that a little bit? Matthew Henry said this, people should take care that all their external behavior be answerable to their profession of Christianity. They must be holy in all manner of behavior. If we are able, we ought to try to look washed and look groomed and decently dressed. But ladies, if you spend half the day doing your hair, half the day putting on gold or wearing excessively fine clothes, the word of God here is saying your focus is too much on your outward adornment. It's too much on that. It's important, but it's not that important. God's word is here saying, don't let your adornment. The Holy Spirit is saying to women, don't let your adornment be merely outward. The cultivation of inward godliness is far more important. It's far more precious in the sight of God. Let it be inward and outward. Let it be both. Moderation and temperance are the keys there. Now look at verse 4 of 1 Peter 3. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. There are ornaments and attire that excel outward ornaments and attire in their beauty. Nothing is more beautiful than a quiet heart that trusts in the Lord Jesus fully. There's nothing more precious and beautiful that a woman can have than a heart that is quiet, that is resting in the Lord, regardless of outward circumstances. Nothing is more beautiful to God than that. So make being beautiful to the Lord, whose opinion matters far more than the men around you or the men in your life, that maybe they don't give you the kind of affirmation that you you need or want, but knowing that God sees that beauty, let that satisfy you. A gentle and a quiet spirit. Ladies, let your souls be adorned with the clothing of Christ. A gentle, quiet spirit, a gentle, quiet soul. One that trusts in the Lord, that's not ruled by anxiety and fear and sleeplessness, but just trusting that your God is bigger than the world around you, bigger than all your circumstances, bigger than every problem or issue you have going on. Rest in His goodness, in His gospel. You know, that term that's translated um, meek there, gentle, gentle and quiet, gentleness. The same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the meek, okay? Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. That term refers to not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Don't think that you're that important. Be gentle, humble, considerate, meek. These are the attributes attributes of Christians in general, but here in 1 Peter 3, 4, they are especially prized among women. And again, I want to encourage you, all, all women here, to focus on what God says. Don't worry about what the, your peers say or what people that you work with say or even men that don't recognize true beauty for what it is say. Let it be that the Holy Spirit has said these things and therefore you can rest and find joy knowing He approves of that. 
Don't let your beauty be just your hair, your face, your clothes, your jewelry. Let it be that you're not impressed by a sense of your self-importance. Let it be your gentleness. Let it be your humility. Let it be that you're considerate. Let it be that you are meek. Let it be that the law of kindness is on your mouth. That when you speak, there's gentleness. There's the wisdom of God's word when you talk. Those are the marks of true biblical beauty. Our world doesn't value those things, but the God that made you does. Let it be that you're considerate. Let it be that you are meek. Let it be those marks of true biblical beauty. God sees that as beautiful in you. Now the term quiet, gentle, quiet spirit. That refers to peaceful, tranquil, and well-ordered. Have a peaceful, tranquil, and well-ordered spirit. The heart of a godly, beautiful woman is not easily angered. She doesn't snap and start yelling or throwing things. She's void of angry passions. She has a joyful submission about her toward her husband and her family. Strength and honor are her clothing. And she doesn't worry about the future, but rejoices in the days to come. You know that great hymn that we sometimes sing, um, A Christian Home, the second stanza, listen to it. Oh, give us homes with godly fathers, mothers, who always place their hope and trust in him, whose tender patience, turmoil, never bothers. You hear that? That's what we're all aiming at. No matter what's going on in family, in marriage, in the world around you, whose tender patience, because they rest in the Lord and in his goodness and his promises, turmoil never bothers. It doesn't rattle them. It doesn't shake them. It doesn't cause them to cry out in despair whose calm and courage trouble cannot dim, a home where each finds joy in serving others, and love still shines though days be dark and grim. Is not him relevant for today? A godly woman is not easily bothered. Turmoil does not send her spiraling down to despair. She has hope. She's gentle. She is tranquil and undisturbed. My great-grandmother, my great-grandmother was the oldest woman in Louisiana when she died in 2007. She was 106 And she was 64 years a widow of a Baptist minister. He was a a minister. He died when he was 44 years old of a severe heart attack. My great-grandmother was left with five children, my grandma being one of them. She never remarried. They had a very hard time getting by for a while there. And my mother told me a story about her mom, my grandma, once when she was a teenager, was just so upset, tired of eating potatoes for every meal, And finally said to my great-grandmother who was washing the dishes, why would God take our father from us and leave us like this? And my great-grandmother's response was, don't you ever question God. Don't you ever question God. And I was told at her funeral, her two other favorite sayings was, God is so good and it just doesn't matter. God is so good and it just doesn't matter. I met her when I was five years old. I still remember that. She clapped her hands over her head and said, I'm 79 years young. And I remember where she was standing when she said that. She was a very special person. And at one point, my mom was upset at me. We went down there to visit her in Louisiana. And my mom said, Patrick, will you quit being a brat? And I said, well, Mamma says I'm her angel. (laughs) Still remember that. It's one of the only things I remember from being five years old. (laughs) Whose tender patience turmoil never bothers. It happens. Life happens. Tragedy happens. Heartache happens. Pain happens. People let you down. People die. There's a lot of hardship in in the world. But to cultivate that inner strength relying upon Jesus, whose tender patience turmoil never bothers, whose calm and courage trouble cannot dim. Will women feel the sting of loss and heartache and have spiritual lows and weep and cry? Yes, of course, we all do. 
But in her heart, she trusts in the goodness of Jesus, the one who bled and died for her soul. She trusts in him. Therefore, she has a gentle, meek, a quiet, tranquil, peaceful soul that transcends everything. Sisters in Christ, that is very precious in the sight of God. The Holy Spirit has said that is very precious to God. Now, turn back over to 1 Timothy 2.9. Another great passage here. 1 Timothy 2.9, just looking at this one verse. In like manner also, 1 Timothy 2.9, in like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, that text is a reiteration of what we just read in 1 Peter 3, 3-4, but there's one difference I want to focus on there. He says, modest apparel. Modest apparel. He's encouraging, the Holy Spirit is encouraging women, dress modestly. When I was in seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, I took a class on folk religions. And it was about the kind of worldviews and religions that pioneering missionaries would encounter when they went to parts of the world that had no gospel influence in them whatsoever. And one thing that was brought home to us is that all those cultures had certain things in common. Places where there was no influence of the Bible and very little connection to the, the so-called civilized world, they always had to tell them to, do, to stop three things. Number one, stop killing babies. Godless cultures always do that. They always have done that. Number two, stop cutting and scarring up your body. And thirdly, put some clothes on. Put some clothes on. We've all seen the documentaries, haven't we, in which people wear, they wear almost nothing. Now, some of that's because of climate, but a lot of it's just immodesty. The undressing of America is part of our cultural apostasy. The disrespect to the human body is a natural consequence of our collective turning away from God, from truth, from Christ, from righteousness. That term, modest there, it means being appropriate for winning approval or appropriate. That's what modest means. And while this passage is not very specific as far as the appropriate lengths of clothing or the appropriate cuts, etc., as a general rule, as an application, I would encourage women to err on the side of caution, to err on the side of covering more as opposed to less. I once heard a Christian woman speak to this issue with great insight. If people see someone wearing a police uniform, they'll assume that person is a police person. If people see someone wearing a nurse's gown, they assume that person is a nurse. If people see women dressed the way that bad and immoral women dress, they will assume that woman is bad and immoral. Many years ago, I started working on an essay. I still haven't finished it. It was titled, The Proverbs 7 Woman, How to Recognize Her and How Not to Be Her. And I once taught a group of teenage guys on a retreat. I I had them for a whole retreat and was able to talk. We walked phrase by phrase through Proverbs 7. And I told them, it's just a matter of time until you meet this woman. And the question is, will you be ready when you do? Notice just a couple of verses through reading this this topic of modesty. Listen to Proverbs 7, verse 10. And there a woman met him, this this clueless guy walking down the street, not paying attention, doesn't have his guard up. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious, and her feet would not stay at home. Notice the contrast there between women who are immoral and ungodly. They're loud and rebellious. What is the godly woman? Gentle, quiet spirit. Dress modestly, says the Holy Spirit to women. Here, this woman has the attire of a harlot. Verse 12, at times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking on every corner. So she caught him and kissed him with an impudent face. She said to him, so on and so forth, I have paid my vows. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. My husband is on a journey and so on and so forth. Everyone here knows what's meant by the attire of a harlot. 
In opposition to this, women are to wear modest clothing, says the Holy Spirit. And my sisters, you want to be modest because it's pleasing to God, but also for the sake of your Christian brothers. You don't want to be a stumbling block to them. Remember question 7 of the Shorter Catechism, the 7th commandment, or question 71, the 7th commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. You shall not commit adultery means far more than just don't commit adultery. Don't do things that would lead others to do the same thing in their minds and hearts, let alone with their own bodies. So even if you don't really feel like you dress immodestly on purpose, remember there are men all around you, and men are very visual when it comes to sexuality. And I say this to you, this is why scripture speaks of this immoral woman in Proverbs 7 as wearing the attire of a harlot. Why does this woman do that? Why does she dress that way? To attract male attention. Why? Because men are visual. Why is there instruction in the word of God to women about dressing modestly but not to men? Same reason. Now, do do men need to dress modestly? Well, of course. But think about the plague and the scourge of pornography in our culture today. The use of sex to sell everything. It's primarily aimed at men, isn't it? And so ladies, be concerned with the chastity and the holiness of the men around you. Be modest in the way you dress and the way you carry yourself. And I would, I would uh, add one more thing to that. Listen carefully to me. The kind of man you want to be married to is going to find immodesty repulsive anyway. Please remember that. The biblical woman is marked by incorruptible beauty, the gentle, meek and quiet, tranquil, peaceful spirit. She dresses modesty out of love for God first, out of respect for herself and love for her Christian brothers. Now let's move to the next section, Ephesians 5.22. Please turn to that passage. Just three verses. Once again, every phrase of these three verses is vitally important. Ephesians 5.22 through 24. Listen to it again. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be their own husbands in everything. Here we have what is probably the most hated part of the biblical teaching about women today in our country. When it comes to marriage, women were not designed to lead, but to follow, specifically to follow their husbands. And please listen to me. In a Christian marriage, probably 97% of all decisions made in the family will be joint decisions where the husband and the wife agree entirely and they'll always be together. But once in a while, there will be an impasse. Once in a while, you'll come to a big important decision where you really don't agree and you've heard the arguments and you've gone back and forth about it And in that situation, the wife is required to submit to her husband's leadership and to follow him. And brothers, when these situations occur, it's a lot easier for them to submit if you've established a long track record of demonstrating by words, by actions, affections, and attitudes that she is precious to you. That you love her dearly. That you put her needs before before your own. That you defer to her. That you die for her if need be. One reason our culture doesn't like this passage is so many men are directionless, visionless. They have no ambition, no goals, no legacy they're hoping to leave behind. They don't want a table. They don't want a family. They don't want to lead worship at home. And sadly for many men in our culture, their vision of manhood doesn't go any further than getting their guy to the next level of some video game. 
And now guys, if that's you, don't expect a woman to submit to you as to the Lord. To the married men with daughters. We must model the kind of godliness that our daughters will one day have to submit to. It ought to be a joyful submission, a trusting submission. Wives ought to be ready, willing, and able to submit to their husbands because that man is a godly man. It says, submit to your husband as to the Lord. What is her submission to the Lord like? It's a joyful submission because she knows that Jesus loves her and died for her and always has her best and her good in mind and always puts her first. So men, her submission to you as the husband should be in the same category of joy. Easy. Because you've demonstrated it. It's as clear as it could be. There's not even a doubt about it. You care about her more than yourself. To the unmarried women here of all ages who have the desire to be married, you must not settle when you marry. You must not settle when you marry. Don't settle for someone because you're afraid of being alone. Wait for a godly man. Wait for a man who will lead and to whom you'll be willing to submit because once you're married, you have to submit to him. Wait for a godly man whose goals and ambitions in life you can make your own. Wait for the man that you know you will want to help along the way. That man will not be able to do what God has called him to do without your help. Do you want to help him do what he feels called to do? And will you want to submit to his leadership, his headship in your home? The reason I'm emphasizing this, look at verse 24. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And you can hear a consistent theme in the Proverbs in opposition to this. Listen, Proverbs 21.9. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Ten verses later in the same chapter. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Four chapters later, 25-24. It's better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious woman. Proverbs 27, 15, a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. It's better to live outside in the wilderness all by yourself than with a contentious woman. Years ago, I worked as a surveyor's assistant and we would do location surveys for mortgage loans. Every time a, a, a mortgage is taken out on a house, they have to do a survey, make sure the house isn't going over its borders and everything else. And we always would have to knock on people's doors and let them know we were there so they wouldn't stick their dogs on us or come out with shotguns or something. And one time, a very nice elderly man came to the door, and um, we just let him know we're, you know, we're from the, more, the uh, surveyor company. We just want to make sure your house is still on the lot and make sure the property lines are good. That's fine. Great. You guys are welcome to use the fence. All of a sudden, his wife comes in behind him and just starts chewing him out and yelling at us to leave, and she would not stop. And he just kept saying, yes, dear. Okay, dear. Uh, yes, dear. We'll talk about this later, dear. And then when he shut the door, my friend that, that I was working with, who was not a Christian, looked at me and said, I ain't never getting married. They used to watch Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls, the ex-Special Forces guy, the British guy, who was always out in the wilderness, used to watch that with my boys, and one of them said, he must have a really contentious wife. <laughs> because he's always dwelling in the wilderness. Doesn't want to be at home. I said, no, it's because he makes millions of dollars doing that, but that's another thing. So ladies, if you do marry, listen, you're going to make or break that guy. You will make or break him. Your life will be captured in this passage, Proverbs 12, 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. And then another one I always emphasize, especially to newlyweds. Proverbs 14, 1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. 
So young women, young married women, older married women, you either build your house or you pull it down with your hands. You're either the crown of your husband or your rottenness in his bones. And to men in general and to married men, men, you must learn to listen to godly women. You've got to listen to them. Their knowledge, their insight, their wisdom and perspective are absolutely vital for you to navigate life. That's why God created Eve for Adam, a helper for him, a counselor for him, someone who will understand him. Men, listen to the godly women that you know, your sisters, your wife, your aunt, your mother, your grandmother, women at church. Listen and learn from them. Husbands, learn to be quiet and hear your wife. Listen to her. Ask her advice. She knows you better than anyone else ever has or ever will know you. And brothers, she can't help you if you do all the talking. I dare you. Married men, go home and ask your wife this afternoon, what three things would you change about me for you to feel more loved? And then brace yourself. Listen to and be quiet. Listen to them and be quiet. Listen carefully to your wife. Ladies, build them up. Build up the men in your life. Be an encouragement to them. That way, when they need correction, you've already demonstrated that you have a love for them. You're not there to pull his house down on him. You're not there to to nag him and to slash and burn him every opportunity. Notice the few things he does right and praise him for those things. We all need that. Married people have to do that. Notice the good more than the bad. Listen to it again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Godly women are trustful and submissive. And part of what brings this about is that the men they know are trustworthy. And they're godly. Okay, finally, look at Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. Here's another key passage. Great text of God's word. A godly mentor to younger women, a teachable younger woman. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Verse 3. Here's God's word. Here's what the Holy Spirit says. And this is part of why we have this women's ministry. We really want to, to foster this in our church because we recognize, as the final phrase of verse 5 says, if we don't do this well, the word of God will be blasphemed. The word of God will be dishonored. You see it? The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Okay, now think about these things for a moment. One of the great losses of our age-segregated world today is the older, younger paradigm of discipleship that is so plainly taught in Scripture. People are always wondering, what's the great new ministry model? Well, just go back to the simple, basic passages of Scripture. It tells us what to do right there. While people tend to flock to their peers because they have more in common with them, what's lost, if they do that, is contact with the older generation. Why is that so important for you to know older people and to listen to older people in your life? Because of the transfer of wisdom gained from life experience. We must be vigorous students of God's word. Yes, indeed. We need to avail ourselves of good books, but there's no substitute for life experience. It is one of the ways that God drives in the nails from his word, which then holds us firmly together as people. It's one thing to know that all things work together for good. I mean, every Christian knows that verse, right? Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. It's a whole other thing when you've got to live like that's actually true. It's a whole other thing when you go through something that absolutely rips your heart out of your chest because of the pain. And to be able to talk to someone who's been through that. 
and still has a gentle, quiet spirit and still trusts in God and still has joy in her life because she's trusting in Jesus no matter what. That kind of wisdom being transferred is what's being addressed here. It's one thing to know that the counsel and plans of the Lord shall always stand to all generations, but it's quite another to watch God at work over a period of years to raise up godly young men and women who will take the torch from us when we're gone. We're wronging the rising generation if we don't invest in them. It's one thing to know that God is faithful. It's another thing to see that faithfulness demonstrated through the course of your life. And I know that you've noticed this. Those of you that are younger, maybe a little bit older like I am, the people that have suffered the most, the people that have been through the hardest of things in life, they tend to be to have the most gentle and the most quiet spirits of anyone because they've learned they have no choice but to trust God always. You need to learn from them. Younger women, don't be shy. Don't be the person who just always wants to be by themselves. Let the older women of our church love on you and mentor you and help you. It says that the older women should be reverent in behavior. Young's literal translation translates that as, in deportment as doth becomes sacred persons. Reverent in behavior, not slanderers. You know what that term is there? That's the, the Greek term diabolos, the word for devil. You can translate that as don't be a devil. So women, don't be devils, it says, basically. Slanderer, someone that's always backbiting, you know, talking, gossiping, that kind of silliness. Not given to much wine. Okay, that phrase there means not in subjection to or enslaved to much wine. The consumption of wine is not wrong, but if you're in subjection to it, if you rely upon it to deal with difficult things, that is sin. Even if life is difficult or painful, we are called upon by the Lord to turn to Him and live upon Him, not live upon drugs, not live upon a high, not live upon alcohol. And then finally there in verse 3, teachers of good things. Now, what what is it that they're supposed to teach? What are these good things? Look at verse 4. That, the older women of, of the church, admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Those are things you have to be taught. Because it's not easy to do that. In fact, I think it was uh, Sarah Edwards wrote a book called Marriage to a Difficult Man. Talking about Jonathan, somebody. (laughs) Older, experienced, married women have much that they can impart to young women about bringing out the best in their husbands. How to love them. You know that older women are supposed to teach younger women how to love them. Younger women need the help of older women in this regard. And they see the second thing, to love their children. And children, they're, they're cute when they're brand new and they're first born. They become real challenging as they get older. They're a lot harder to love. Same thing here. Older women who have successfully raised children need to pass that wisdom on to younger women with children. So much is at stake and there's so much wisdom that needs to be passed on here. There is so much wisdom and life experience in this room that you younger women need to know about loving your husband and loving your children. The biblical instructions on raising children and loving husbands is quite clear, but the applications of these passages can be difficult to fully grasp. Again, life experience in these matters is of great importance. If it were not, God would not be commanding older women to teach younger women these things. It's not that the word of God is insufficient. It's just that so much of its wisdom needs to be applied in unique situations. And only those that have done it over a period of years can tell younger women how to do it. Those who have done it for a long time have so much to teach. Those whose lives are lived walking in these truths need to be seen by the younger women in the church. Okay, look at verse 5. To be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now that term, discreet, it simply means self-controlled. So older women need to teach younger women to be self-controlled. 
The next term, chaste. That means pure, holy, and innocent. This is in stark contrast to what often characterizes younger women. Many times younger women are rash, or immodest, reckless, disrespectful, and are anything but discreet and chaste in their affections and their behavior. Now look at the next term, homemakers. Homemakers. This means busy at home, working at home, a domestic keeper of the home. And we're going to look at that in more detail at, at Proverbs 31, 10 to the end of that chapter this evening. Please do come back for that. And that would be in stark contrast to the loud and rebellious immoral woman of Proverbs 7 whose feet would not stay at home. You see the contrast there? Paul also told Timothy about ungodly young women in these words, 1 Timothy 5.13. He said, and besides, they learn to be idle and wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. So the older woman needs to teach the younger woman how to manage her home. You see the next term? Good. This means having high standards in everything that you do, everything that you watch. The next phrase, obedient to their own husbands, subject to their own husbands. Rid your mind of the drill sergeant issuing orders to cadets. This is headship in the home, and the husband is the head of his home. Women must fight the results of the fall that were pronounced by God after Adam and Eve fell there in Eden. Remember what God told them their relationship was going to be like now? Genesis 3.16. To the woman, God said this. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The woman will desire to control her husband, to dominate her husband, but he is going to rule over her. The woman's not allowed to usurp that authority of her husband. They're created as equals in God's image. Yes, indeed, we're both equally image bearers of God, but the husband is the head of the wife in the home. She is required to obey him. He is not to be harsh or bitter towards her, but loving, as loving as Jesus Christ is to his church. Nevertheless, there is hierarchy in the family and in marriage. And isn't it amazing? Even that basic simple truth is starting to be challenged in many reform circles today. Books are coming out. I keep hearing more and more rumblings about this. And yet the passages stand, don't they? Husbands must never use their God-given position of authority in order to in any way hurt or embitter their wives. Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Men, God commands you not to be bitter toward your wife. Not to be bitter toward her. And I would argue by extension that we are not to be like this toward women in general either. The Greek verb here translated as bitter, that Greek verb means to embitter, exasperate, render angry or indignant. Why would a man ever do that to his wife? Because he feels like she's not meeting my needs. She's not keeping up her end of the bargain here. She's not doing what I need her to do. She just slashes and burns me all the time. It doesn't matter. Men, love your wife. Don't be bitter toward her. Yeah, but she's not doing what she's supposed to do. It doesn't matter. People say, it's got to be 50-50. No, it's 100% no matter what comes back. Whether it's 50 or zero, love your wife. Yeah, but this, yeah, but that. You love your wife. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, love your wife. That's what you promised to do in front of God and witnesses. It's easy when everyone's starry-eyed and engaged. It's much harder when life gets bad, isn't it? It's not for the faint of heart. God commands us not to be that way towards them. Wives are required to obey their husbands, and husbands are required not to embitter or exasperate their wives. We are not to make them angry. So brothers, let's say that your wife or mother or sister is very sad or is in pain or is in a very bad mood, is cranky, 
You must notice that the command of Colossians 3.19 is unqualified with regard to their well-being or mood. Do not be bitter toward them. Don't react to that. Our calling from Christ is love as Christ loved the church. And every man here that's married can be thankful that Jesus does not love us the way we love our wives. Our calling from Christ is love as Christ's love. You see how precious that relationship is? Regardless of mood, regardless of anything. Only a biblical man is going to be able to do that. Women, the scenario is the same. It applies in reverse. Obedience to your husband and being all of those things are not optional or conditional. They are commands. Okay, so if you don't see how much you need the shed blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ to save you, then you're self-deceived, especially if you're married. Why do we do all that? Why do we do these things and want to obey them? You see the the last phrase of verse 5? That the word of God may not be dishonored. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. What is the result of Christian women who are taught these things by the older women? The word of God will not be blasphemed, dishonored. The usages of the verb for blaspheme there means slandered. You realize when we don't live in accordance with what scripture says about our marriages, we're slandering God. We're reviling him. We're defaming him. We're speaking irreverently, impiously, disrespectfully about God. When I don't love my wife as Christ loved the church, I'm lying about him to the world, to my children. This is what happens when women professing to know the true God don't exhibit the attributes and the qualities that are spelled out in Titus 2, 3 through 5. So young women, I want to exhort you, encourage you, beg you. Be teachable. You must desire relationships with older women in your church. I know everybody's busy. I know everybody's shy. But these are the commands of the word of God. And the consequences of neglecting the older, younger women discipleship paradigm are the word of God is blasphemed. And I know that no no one here that loves the Lord wants that to happen. No, I know. We live in a culture of independence. People brag about it in church. My daughters, they're awfully independent. Not made to be independent. I'm not independent. I'm dependent on my wife, dependent on my friends, dependent on my church. The wife's not independent of her husband. The husband is not independent of our wife. Why do we praise an attribute that's ungodly? We're not supposed to be independent. We're not individuals. We're not lone rangers. We live in a culture dominated by I don't need anybody sort of mindset. I'd like to suggest that's why suicide rates are through the roof. People don't know anybody. They're not friends with anybody. There's too much fear. We're supposed to need each other. We're supposed to depend on each other. So younger women, as much as your culture has told you to be independent, to stand alone, you need to be an island, that's not the biblical model. It takes humility to be teachable. It takes a humble heart to be willing to sit and learn from someone else that is wiser than you. It takes Christian maturity to practice Titus 2, 3 through 5. Biblical womanhood is characterized by that which is beautiful and precious to God. Biblical women have gentle, meek, and quiet, tranquil, peaceful souls. They have the self-respect given to them by God and a love for their Christian brethren such that they adorn themselves modestly. They are not excessive in the way they live. They take care of themselves, but they don't obsess about the way they look. They're more interested in being beautiful to God to their savior. They're trustful and submissive. The younger women look up to admire and learn from the older godly women in the church. Younger women, an older woman in the church tries to befriend you or reach out, reaches out to you. Let her do it. Learn from her. The godly woman learns from those older women how to love their husbands. 
You hear what the Holy Spirit is saying there? You need help doing that. You're designed to be a helper to your husband, but you need help learning how to love him. If he's not going to be easy to love, if he's a man, he's not going to be easy to love. To love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands. And the older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not enslaved to wine, teachers of good things. May God grant all women here a vision for the kind of godliness which is not just precious in the sight of God, but very precious in the sight of God, it says. These things are very precious to God. I'd like to suggest to you, entire civilizations rise or fall with the godliness of their women and their men. In closing, listen to the wondrous words of the end of Proverbs 31 about the biblical woman, the godly woman, the woman who wears strength and honor as her clothing. Listen, Proverbs 31, 25. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She's post-millennial in her eschatology. Is what that, that, that is what that means, by the way. She opens her mouth with, with wisdom. On her tongue is the law of kindness. She opens her mouth. She's not tearing down the house. She's not slashing and burning her husband or her kids. On her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. And he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is beauty. Or, excuse me, charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. That's God's vision for womanhood. I hope you'll come back this evening. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for speaking to the all-important issue for us as individuals, and that is to understand our gender, that we're either a man or we are a woman. And each gender is blessed. We're both images of God equally members of your church, and yet we have distinct roles that are given to us in your word. Help us to recognize those roles are for our happiness. Those roles are for the purpose of human flourishing and joy. Turn us away from the world around us and its lies about these things and its confusion about these things. And I pray for all the women here that you would bless them and help them. Help them to be courageous in their generation, to stand against the tide, to obey the commands of scripture, and to adorn themselves as the godly women of old did with love and good works, with a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of their God and Savior. We ask in his name. Amen.